What up, what up, Meepsters? This is Ryan Rainbro, and if you're hearing this, that means you're about to listen to one of the 99 free episodes of the Meep Meep podcast available wherever you cast pods. But keep in mind that there are new and unreleased episodes of the show on patreon.com slash meetmeetpod. So you'll want to sign up there to hear future episodes and also other side projects like Choo Choo, the show about soundtracks and contribute suggestions for future episodes as well. Will I listen to your suggestion? <laughs> There's only one way to find out. Patreon.com slash meetmeetpod. Bye! Welcome to Meet Meet, the Roadrunner podcast, where we explore the albums of Roadrunner Records with the artists who made them and the musicians they influenced. Let's roll! What up, what up, Meepsters? This week we go into the barrio with Asesino the Assassin Dino Cazares for the 1995 sophomore Roadrunner release by El Patron de Mexico, Brujaria. The album is called Raza Odiada, which translates to Hated Race, and this band is a bona fide supergroup, with their ranks on this record including Billy Gould of Faith No More, Raymond Herrera of Fear Factory, Shane Embori of Napalm Death, and our guest today, Dino Asesino. The Assassin gives us the full rundown of the band's formation, the controversial cover art of their debut, the approach to the follow-up, and the saga of the Asesino character himself. This is really a can't-miss episode, so I'm glad you're here. It's time to cross the border. Monty Connor, yeah. yeah. I've been working with Monty for yeah the beginning of our career when he signed the band. You know, He was the one person that worked at, 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 uh, at a record label that really believed in what we were doing. So one of the cool things about that is that you know, when I presented him with Brujeria, he liked the concept. He liked the idea. So he signed, he signed the band. You know, I was coming off, uh, you know, we did Soul of a New Machine, right? Fear Factory, Soul of a New Machine. And then we had time off during Christmas. That was the best time that most bands didn't tour during December, January. That's kind of like the, the slow period for touring. So we were able to call up all our friends, you know, Shane from Napalm Death, uh, you know, uh, different guys, uh, Billy Gould from Faith and More, different guys to come in and, you know, put this record together with us, right? Everybody comes in. We don't have, we don't have one song written. We book studio time. And then we just go in and write in the studio, right? And everybody's partying, having a good time, drinking beer. Some of the guys are doing other things that I don't want to get into. But I was probably the only sober one working. You know, um, the first record, it's called Matando Hueros, which has definitely got us a lot of attention. Billy Gould produced that, that record from Faith and Warren, the bass player. And we kind of wanted to sound, we kind of wanted it to sound really raw. We wanted it to sound like, we recorded it in some fucking barn in Mexico with a bunch of chickens running around. And we wanted it to sound that wanted to give it that vibe, like an authentic, authentic Mexican, you know, lo-fi, low budget type of tone. Right. And it was like, and it worked, it worked perfect. 
It worked really perfect. And, um, and one of the reasons why the record got a, was a lot of controversy was because one day we were looking inside this magazine as this uh, newspaper type of magazine. It's kind of like the National Enquirer, right, of Mexico. But they also sell them here in California. You might have heard of them. They're called La Alarma. It means to be alarmed. You know what I mean? Um, there's one called Peligro, you know, warning. And usually on the front cover, they have some fucking brutal murder. Like somebody got fucking shot, stabbed, mutilated, burned, whatever. They put them on the front cover, right? So we saw this and we're like, we saw this one story inside where it was like a John Doe. Like nobody knew who this one particular person that was uh, on the train tracks and he got ran over by a train. So his head and his torso was cut off from the train. So somebody put him there. It was a drug deal that had gone bad. Somebody put him there or they tied him there or whatever. And the train came over and ran him over. And so they were, um, the coroners took pictures, right? They have to take pictures. And so there was one picture where they were holding up the head and they put a white towel behind the head so you can really see the head. And somebody took a picture of that. The coroners did. And they put it in the magazine. We're like, holy fuck, look at this story. Look at this picture. That's going to be the cover of the fucking album. That's the cover. I'm like, what are we going to do? Scan it from the newspaper? He goes, no, man. We're going to fucking, we're going to try to get a hold of the actual people. Who, let's, let's write a letter to the newspaper and hopefully they will respond, right? And they did respond. They said, here, send us 250 bucks and we'll send you the actual pictures. So we wrote a check, whatever, a money order, uh, sent it to them. We didn't think we were ever going to see anything. We're like, ah, you know, they just took the money. It's, but, you know, a few weeks later, they all came. Real pictures. Real pictures. You know, there were eight by ten size, right? We're like, oh, my God, the whole, the whole investigation, the whole body, everything. It was like the torso, all that stuff, the legs, all that stuff was in there. And we're like, holy shit. So we sent it to the record company and said, here's the cover. <laughs> like, oh my God, <laughs> this is brutal. So we put the head on the cover, of course, right? And inside the packaging, uh, you know, you saw the torso and the legs, the train tracks on the back of the CD also had like pounds and pounds and pounds and pounds of cocaine and heroin. It was like, it got like just from the manufacturing company, right? When they sent, when they sent, when they put the whole thing together, they sent it over to the manufacturing company to make the CDs. The people who were working at the manufacturing companies were Latino. They were like, uh, we don't want to, we don't want to touch this. They were so religious. These people working, you know, it's, it's, you, you see the name Brujeria is black magic, right? You see the name Brujeria. You see the head cut off. It's called Matando Huedos. You look at the lyrics and they're fucking freaked out. So they ended up manufacturing it. But when they put them in shipping boxes, on the shipping boxes, they would write prayers. They were blessing the boxes. Like, ay, Dios mío, ay, you know, they were like freaked out. And so they were putting prayers and we're like, and um, we didn't, we didn't know about this at first until somebody at the record label told us about it. And we're like, we're like, no, we don't believe you. And they're like, yeah, 
they started taking pictures and they were showing us the prayers that were on the box, the shipping boxes. And we're like, holy shit. Like they were having like a hard time just manufacturing the CD. Like I knew friends that worked like at Tower Records on Sunset. They were getting the boxes as well. They were getting shipments of all metal stuff from Roadrunner, right? And Brujeria was in there. And one of my friends who was working there actually showed me the box as well with a prayer on the box. Wow. Like, I'm like, let me have that. I want to save that. And he's like, no, I'm saving it. So he still has it. So it got so much, the cover got so much backlash that Roadrunner had to reprint the cover and put like a, a black cover on it where you could just, you know, rip it off and then boom, you got the cover. Even when they stocked it, they put Brujeria, they put warning. They actually put a warning stickers like, you know, be careful when you buy this, which it actually did really well because people wanted to buy it because of that. You know, the more, the more you tell people not to buy something or that's it's scary or it's brutal or don't, don't get it, you know, prayers on the boxes, it makes you want it more. You know what I mean? And so it actually ended up doing pretty well. Is that um, why there was such a muted cover for Raza Odiata because of Roadrunner wanting to not have to deal with that again, or it has nothing to do with it? No, no, no. Things change. Things change. Like Brujeria's, Brujeria's concept, well, to me, Brujeria's concept to me was obviously it had the, a cult following, the, the cult, sorry, lyrics, but it also had a lot of the drug cartel stuff as well. It also had a lot of uh, a political message as well. You know, like the struggles that uh, a Mexican individual, what they have to go through just to make it across over to the United States. The coyotes dying in the desert, drowning, getting left in the back of semis, dying from heat exhaustion, you know, all that stuff, just the struggles. And also the politics that every mayor, governor, president, political person always had some opinion about immigration, about the wall, you know what I mean? The wall, the fence, or just anything to do with anything like that. I called it, I call it border politics. That's what I call it. Right. So we sang a lot about border politics, you know, about the things that just happen on the border, whether it's the drug cartel fighting for the border, you know, fighting uh, for territory. Like, Hey, this is, Tijuana is my territory. You got to go further east or further south. This is my border. Tunnels, tunnels, elaborate tunnels that where people can go under. They smuggle drugs. They smuggle people. You name it. Submarines. I don't know if you know, they got submarines. They go from like Tijuana to San Diego. Yeah. They got submarines. Like people think that this wall was going to do, people think that this Trump wall was going to do anything, but it's, it wasn't. But the tunnels would go from one house, go all the way underneath. And they come up another house on the other side. And the only way that the Border Patrol could even detect it was they had to use military stuff that was able to, I guess it's like a, you point it, it's, it's like a certain type of sensor that can track heat. So if there's any like heat, I don't know how far down it can go, but I think it's pretty far down. So that's the only way you could track that these people are going in tunnels. So they, they couldn't even detect the actual tunnel. They had to detect the human being that was in movement. Well, they had suspicions of what was going on. You know what mm. I mean? Like, you know, they, they, they might have raided a house and like, holy shit, look at this tunnel that we found coming from the, one of the bedrooms. 
like holy shit and they they follow it down they go all the way through and they're like holy shit but they also had like golf carts they fucking get golf carts they just ride a golf cart or an ATV or whatever they could fit down there they were they were big elaborate tunnels you know, I was going to say it sounds huge if a golf cart is fitting in there cuz I'm picturing like you know a narrow like crawl space but you're saying it's like the width of a vehicle Yes. So that's where the inspiration for a lot of those songs came from. Was that that like culture? Well, we just talked a lot about the border politics of the shit that just went on, like the drug deal in the beginning of uh, the beginning of uh, uh, Matando album, the drug deal that goes bad between a white guy and a Mexican guy. You know, he goes bad and he gets shot. You know, that's part of the border politics that goes on. The drug politics, I guess you want to call it. Um, but the actual name for Brujeria that well, we actually got the name was from a long time ago in the eighties. I would yeah, the eighties, probably about 87, 88, around there. These kids, these white kids, Caucasian, went across to go party in Mexico, right? There was one guy in particular named Mark Kilroy, college white kid, went over, went across to go party. He didn't make it back. So the parents on, on the Texas side, they went to the police there. Police in Mexico are like, well, we don't know, man. Kids, dis- kids disappear all the time. We don't know where he's at. You know, Kids leave. Maybe he didn't want to come home, whatever, right? So the parents realized that they weren't, they weren't getting any help from the police. So they decided to do their own investigation. So they went across to Mexico. They put flyers everywhere. No response. No one reacted to it. So they were trying to hide, hire private investigators in Mexico to go try to find their son. Still nothing, right? A year goes by. There's this one guy, drug cartel guy. He's in a semi. He's trying to cross the border, trying to pay off border patrols. For some reason, didn't go, didn't go well. They ended up arresting him. They found the drugs in the semi, and the guy ends up confessing. And he confessed that, that he worked for so-and-so. He gave him the location where they would pack the semis and everything, right? So they go out to, the, the police go out to this location and they find it's a massive ranch where they pack the semis. This is where they like, they get dogs and they cut the, cut the throats of dogs and they put like dog's blood around the tires, around the car, or maybe around the semi or whatever truck they're using. So that way when the dogs go smell it, they smell another dog and they just kind of piss or whatever, right? They don't smell the drugs. They smell the other dog. It throws the scent off. So they go to this hell, they go to this ranch. It's it's nicknamed Hell Ranch. They call it Hell Ranch. So they go to this ranch, they bust everybody there, right? And so the drug federalities, they're like, they're on this big ranch. And they notice that this is there's like this shed like really far away. Like, like they see the shed like on this property, like way over there. Hmm, let's go see what that shed is. So they get to the shed and they realize that it's like a like like a satanic cult and in this shed they would like sacrifice humans so they found the remains in the id of mark kilroy they found his remains there they found his id and all that stuff and that's why there was that that connection between texas and mexico and you know the the drug satanic cult and that kid, and they realized that he wasn't the only one that they found there. There was other people that they found there, right? And what they were doing is they were having 
they were having like sex rituals, satanic rituals. They were uh, drinking the blood or pouring the blood on them. They believed that if they had the protection of Satan, that they would not get caught into Texas borders, that they would not get caught, that Satan will take care of them. Satan is looking over them and they will not get caught. That's what they believed. So we saw it. We saw it in the newspaper, La Larma, on the front. Brujeria. And it had all these little pots full of blood and bones. And they showed like the whole shed, you know, where people were hung, stuff like that. Just all kinds of shit, right? And um, we saw that. and We read the story. Like, holy fuck, that is the name of the band. Now that we got the name of the band... We better make a record. <laughs> so we did a first seven inch in 1988 called Demoniaco, which means demon maniac. It's the first seven inch. Then we did a second seven inch about Pablo Escobar called El Patron, which means, you know, the, the leader, the captain, the boss, whatever you want to call it, right? El Patron. And so we did that one about him. Then we did a third seven inch on Alternative Tentacles, which is Jello Biafra's label. And that one's called Machetazos. And that's about being machete hacked. Somebody being fucking cut up with a machete. And on the front cover, it has this guy who killed himself, all kinds of stuff, right? Pretty extreme. So we released three seven inches, right? And so we started to kind of get a little bit of like a, like a little bit of a cult following. Like this thing's fucking, like people were thinking like, this is scary. This is brutal. This is like real shit. So when I signed with Roadrunner Records for Fear Factory, I ended up pitching it to Monty Connor. And so that's how the first record came out, Matando Huedos. And Matando Huedos means, basically means kill Whitey. We don't mean it in a racist way. We mean it, mean it in the, the tension between the Mexicans and the whites and, you know, the drug politics, you know, the racist white border patrol agents, you know, the, uh, you know, killing Mark Kilroy, you know, because they believe they sacrificed Mark Kilroy because they believed in that Satan was going to help them, you know. So just all that, that's why it was called Matando Huedos. Now, did Brujeria exist before Fear Factory then? Yes. Oh, wow. Okay. Fear Factory didn't start till 1990. And then we got signed in 1991. And then the first record came out in 1992. And then that, that same year, um, Brujeria's first full-length record, Matano Huedos, came out as well. Well, that's pretty cool. So you uh, were already friends with all these people that are in Brujeria before you were ever yes. in Fear Factory? Yes. I was friends with everybody, yeah, before I was even in Fear Factory, yep. And Jello is a part of the band to some degree, right? Jello only <laughs> did some intros and some spoken word stuff. He never sang on any of the tracks. Matando Huedos. So we're talking like, I don't know how many years later, maybe 2000, 1999, 2000, like, you know, 10 years later or so after the record came out, there was a, in Houston, Texas, there was a couple, a, a woman and a man, and they were beheaded, right? They were beheaded. They couldn't find the guy's head, right? But they found, they found the woman and her head. They found the body of the guy. So they, um, the Houston police decided to go 
on national TV and say, hey, this is what happened. And we're looking for this guy's head. If you have, if anybody knows of the whereabouts of this head, please, you know, contact the Houston police. And they put a picture of the guy. And it just so happens that that guy's, that guy's picture looked exactly like <laughs> the head from Matando Huero's record. Matando Huero's. And it, that was 10 years before, right? So every so a lot of people were like, oh, my God, that's Brujeria. Oh, my God, that's the head from the Brujeria. Oh, my God, they were faxing in pictures of the cover <laughs> of Matando Huero's, right? The head from Matando Huero's. And so they were like, the Houston police were like, oh, we better contact the record company. So they contacted the record company, right? And the record company is like, uh, we don't know anything about this. Um, contact the band members, right? But luckily, the Houston police were able to put two and two together and realize they were years apart. And they weren't the same guy, that they actually never called any of us. But, but it was just really kind of funny because the record label was like, freaked out they called us up right away so oh my god the houston police is calling us up because they're looking for that head and that head's on the cover of the they even thought that it was part of the cover you know what i mean at first but they realized that it wasn't because it was years apart so when we get to the second record we're like okay you know let's let's try to make a better record because i just finished demanufacture right so during, again, during the Christmas holidays, we got together again, rented studio time, and went in and recorded songs, right? And remember, we record these songs on the fly. We didn't rehearse. I didn't write these songs before, right, or nothing. We just went in and wrote songs on the fly. So whatever came out, came out, right? We press record. We record the idea. Boom, we get it down. We finish a song in an hour. The one, thing, the one thing that took a long, it took months, was always the vocals. Because, because uh, you know, some of the guys were having too much fun and, you know, they couldn't sing very well, if you know what I mean. They couldn't, uh, they couldn't, uh, their, their throats would get sore before they even sang a note. So, of too much partying. Right. So, um, but yeah, when we went in to do the second record, we're like, okay, you know, a lot of stuff was going down in Mexico in Chiapas where the government was going and slaughtering people in their small villages just to take their land. Then you had, you had Comandante Marcos, which was, you know, the leader out there and he was just trying to fight or sorry, protect the Mexican Indians from losing their land. Right. And so he was, he had a lot of volunteers and people in his little army that, you know, they had, they were very well, they were actually supported by a lot of people here in the United States, right? And so um, he was, he was, I know he was a professor and I believe, and I believe he um, learned all the military tactics from books and just videos and stuff like that. And so he was teaching people how to, how to fight, you know, and how to train for all that stuff. And so they were protecting the Indians. And so, um, they ended up signing a, 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 a peace treaty with the government in Mexico that they, that these lands were protected and stuff like that. And so we decided to bring it, bring it into uh, the record, which was very, very impactful. Right. Cause we have him on the front cover. I don't even know if he knew he was on the front cover, but we thought that was fucking amazing. 
and there was a poster. There was like posters that were made, and so we just took the, we just took the, image from the poster, scanned the poster, and used it for the album cover. That's really cool. So we got more into the politics and more into the border politics and more into the indigenous Indian, you know, protecting their land politics and stuff like that, especially with um, the opening track, which was called Pito Wilson. Which was Governor Pete Wilson here in California. And Governor Pete, Governor Wilson was also using the border as uh, a selling tactic to get more votes or to pass a law. And I think the law was called Proposition 87, I think it was called. Proposition 187, I believe it was, where basically you're, if you're illegal here in California, then you're going to get thrown out even if you're working, you have a job, you're paying your taxes. If you're uh, going to school, they're going to pull you out and they're going to throw you back. That's pretty much how it was said. Like they didn't give a fuck. And they're just like, it was brutal. Right. And then it, and then it, so we wrote a song about him just calling him racist. It kind of all came to an end, like Proposition 187 kind of came to an end when these people were in a truck and they busted through the, the border and they were on the San Diego side and they were coming through the Tijuana border and they busted through and they were in a truck and there was a helicopter on top filming everything down. So you could see the truck, you know, kind of like in one of those car chases, right? You can see the truck and all the border patrol agents behind them, right? Truck pulls over, everybody jumps out and goes running except one person. There was a woman inside the truck. They yanked her out. The police, the border patrol agents yanked her out or the sheriffs, I'm sorry, sheriffs yanked her out and were just beating her. Boom, beating her. Boom, boom, boom. They realized she was pregnant and they killed the baby because they beat her. Baby died. And that all that proposition 27 out the window. He was the governor when I lived there. So I remember just all that. And, you know, my mom being Hispanic, too, at the time, she was like, oh, I can't believe this bullshit, you know. And my dad is like, yeah, this guy rocks. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. Yeah, there was a lot of people that were for him. But there was, you know, obviously, after that happened, it was like shocking. It made all the news. And then he had to answer for it. You know what I mean? So it didn't go very well. (laughs) So, yeah. Yeah. So that's what happened. And, uh, you know, and then, you know, shortly after that, I mean, well, shortly before that, I want to say just before that, or maybe that same year is when the Rodney King riots happened. So, you know, that was Matanda Huedos. And then like the Rodney King riots happened. And then we did Razo Odiada a year and a half later, you know what I mean? Or two years later. So all that stuff was going down and, LA was a big melting pot, you know, of just a lot of issues. And obviously it all came to, to a head when, um, you know, when that shit went down too, you know what I mean? So there was a lot of things that contributed to that record. Just the whole, you know, pretty much the same thing that Fear Factor was influenced to write D-Manufacture were some of the similar things that were for, the inspiration for, you know, brujeria, just the things that were going on at the border, California, Mexico, you know, just all that stuff, you know, uh, combined, which, uh, you know, 
we, uh, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of pos- positive songs on that record. You know, like you know, Latinos got to stand up and we got to fight. You know what I mean? Not necessarily physically fight, but just fight for our rights. You know what I mean? Um, there was a lot of that in there. Um, there's a lot of like party songs, right? This kind of just having a good time. Well, you have one called Rat. Uh, what's it called? Polas de Rat. Means rat tails. And what that means is uh, lines of cocaine. <laughs> okay. So, yeah. That wasn't what I partaked in, but I, it's hilarious. When you read the lyrics, it's hilarious. You know what I mean? Um, it's just a party song. It's an extreme party song, right? You know, everything from, in, in the lyrics, everything from, from cocaine to drinking tequila to shooting up and the smoking weed. You know what I mean? All, all within the chorus. Did you uh, collaborate with Juan on the lyrics or the, at least the song ideas? Um, some of the, some of the stuff, but not necessarily, no, because I was not really into the, um, I mean, I thought it was hilarious and I didn't judge anybody from doing the drugs. I just was not the guy doing that. I was not into that. Sure. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, the, yeah, the third record was called Brujerismo, which I guess will be satanicism. That record, we decided to go a little bit more into the occult you know, the occult side, the black magic side, but also there's some positive songs as well, where División del Norte, which is about Pancho Villa, even though he has died many years ago, his spirit still lives in us. Because Pancho Villa was a hero, Mexican hero back in, you know, 50, 40s and 50s, I believe, 30s, 40s and 50s. You know, even though he's died, his spirit still lives in us. So that's, that was kind of like a positive song. But then we also had some, we also had some one song that was, uh, that was about a, a, a meth lab gone wrong <laughs> and, it, and it blows up. Laboratorios Cristalitos, something like that. Then we had a song called uh, um, Pititis de Invoco, which is like, uh, I summon the concubine of hell. Right. So it was a, it's a love song between Brujo and Pititis. Oh, it's I, a didn't love song. <laughs> I didn't yeah. know that. So he's summoning the concubine of hell to come be with the singer. Did that album you also write on the fly? Because that one seems a little bit more like focused and uh on the fly, on the fly too. Oh wow, that's very cool. When you say that you wanted to like make it a better album, what did you do differently other than just making it have better production? Like when you're writing the songs. Um, uh i wanted i wanted to bring in different i wanted to bring in another musician that i had been writing with for a while that was raymond herrera i wanted to bring him in um because you know we obviously we had uh, a, a connection when it came to writing um you know and we read we, we could read each other really well you know what i mean and he understood my language go like this you know he understood that language there's a little there's this particular kind of language that when you're writing with people that you can just say, go like this, or you just give them a certain look and they kind of know, you know what I mean? Because they, you have that connection. That was a connection that I had with him. So I wanted him to bring a better drummer that I could bounce ideas off of, off of really quickly. Sure. So we were writing songs within a, in the fly. I mean, I wrote, you know, songs that were like, I literally wrote, one riff songs mm-hmm. like it's one riff just played three or four different styles of picking but it's the same notes 
I call it one riff, right? But it's the same, same three or four notes picked in different styles. Now, if there's any drummer that knew how to make that interesting, that was Raymond. To be able to um, make something simple sound cooler, cooler, like a simple riff sound cooler because of what he's doing on the drums, right? Uh, and to elevate that simple riff. He was able to do that and we had that connection. And it, and it worked vice versa. You know what I mean? I think he also accentuates your precision on the second record. You know, the way that you have that uh, very precise mm-hmm. playing style with yeah. your riffs. Yeah. That, I also, on Razio Yada, I also produced the album as well. Oh, okay. Produced and mixed it. Little, little studio called Huey. Uh, it's called Studio D. It's a guy named Huey who owned it. We always go there. We would always go there to record all the Brujeria records. And we did some Fear Factory demos there as well. What did you have to do with the La Migra video? Uh, besides being in it? Well, besides, like, I mean, did you come up with the concept? Did you help? It seems like you're very hands-on. So, like, are you directing it? Like, you know, what's going on? No, no, no. The, you're just the, kind of in the, the end, though, right? Where you guys are saying La Migra, La Migra? Or are you in Yeah, it? The, 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 the singer directed the video. Yeah, okay. he, he, he handled all that. He had the vision for that stuff, right? I had, I had the vision of, you know, what the music should sound like. You know what I mean, it needed to stand. It needed to stand apart from Fear Factory, right? And that's one of the one of the probably the more difficult things to do is to make sure that everything that you write uh, is particular style for that for, for that particular project. Fear Factory was like a lot of a lot of syncopated kick drums, you know, mechanical sounding, blah blah blah. Brujeria was a much more looser, you know, had a, like a grindcore speed metal you know type of vibe to it you know some punk elements to it as well especially when i brought raymond in right you know what i mean because we were like okay we specifically were telling each other it's got to be simpler it's got to be easier it's got to be catchy it's got to be short songs we're not trying to make six and a half minute epic songs like fear factory and we got to do them quick and it can't sound like fear factory okay boom and we did it right away. Yeah, that's one really cool thing about it that I know must have been difficult, or maybe it wasn't difficult, but definitely a conscious thing is that, like I said, it definitely sounds like you playing in the sense of the the precise nature of it, because you just have that, I mean, you've been working on it for a whole career of making sure you have that precise sound, yeah. but it doesn't sound like a Fear Factory riff, but it sounds like you playing a different kind of music. So when we, when there, when uh, when Juan Brujo was doing the lyrics, he... Um, you know, he came up with the ideas and the concepts, but he had another guy, uh, which was one of, I believe it was his cousin, a guy named, we called him Beachy Beach. He really, really helped him. Those guys would just sit there and just, you know, have fun coming up with the most funniest shit they can come <laughs> up with. The most extreme, funniest, dark stuff they can come up with. And they would just sit there and I can hear them laughing, you know, ah, ha, ha, you know, this, this lyric and they'll just read the lyrics and they would just talk about the concepts and then boom, they'd have a song written, right? Lyric written. But, you know, when it came into recording the vocals, I was there the whole time, you know, retracting the vocals, you know, helping Brujo come up with the rhythm patterns, the hooks, you know what I mean? Uh, you know, sometimes 
sometimes a line didn't work. It was too long or too short, things like that. So then we, he would be like, hold on. They'd go into another room. They'd party for another hour, write some more lyrics, and then we'd come back. And then we'd, then we'd just write some more, uh, record some more. So, How did you meet Juan? You know, all these other guys kind of have a, a pedigree that we're all familiar with, but what, what did uh, that relationship come okay, from? I met, first I met Jim Martin, the guitar player of Faith No More. I met him first from a, from a girl that I knew from San Francisco. Introduced me to Jim, Jim Martin. And we got along really well. Uh, he was a fan of one of my bands called the Douche Lords, which we were kind of like a ripoff of SOD meets the mentors. We were just hung out. We hung out for a while for, for, for years, right? We hung out and he introduced, he took me to a Faith No More rehearsal. This is when they had Chuck Mosley in the band, right? I want to say 87, 88, around there. And so went to the rehearsal and I met Billy, Billy Gould, right? And Roddy Bottom. I met, I met the whole band, right? Chuck Mosley. They go on, they go on tour Somehow things didn't work out with Chuck Mosley, so he's out of the band. They come back to California, and I'm hanging out with Billy Gould, and Billy Gould introduced me to this guy named Juan Brujo. And so we hit it off. I'm hanging out with these guys. I go, you know, I'm like 20. I would say 20, maybe 19 or 20 around there. Not even old enough to get the bars yet. So I, I was considered the kid, you know what I mean? Hanging out with these guys that were just – not that much older, you know, a few years older and going out with them to all these different parties in Los Angeles, all different parts of some places that I've never been to, like some extreme underground clubs. So, you know, hanging out with these guys and it was cool. And that's how I, that's how I met Juan Brujos from Billy Gould. Was there ever any consideration to record even like a song in English or was that was part of the gimmick was that all the songs no were in Spanish? Okay. No way. We believe that we open up a whole new market <clears throat> because we didn't hear any death metal bands or anything like that. There might be, there might have been death metal bands singing in Spanish, but we didn't really know too much of them. You know, a lot of the, a lot of the bands that we knew were trying to sing in English. Mm-hmm. That that were that were Latin bands, but there was never anything like Brujeria. I think that's one of the reasons why it stood out. I believe that we said a lot of things politically incorrect that, you know, or we said things that people wanted to say, but they didn't, but they didn't say because they were afraid to say them. And uh, I think that's what people connected with, you know? I mean, my favorite part of the packaging of Raza Odiada is underneath the disc. It says we're Mexicans, not Latinos. Latinos are the white people of Latin America. We're not Hispanics. Uh, Hispanics are from Spain. Yes. I think that's cool. <laughs> that's a cool thing to, to yeah. put in the It was just word. the meaning of the word Mexican, you know, it was like, but it's kind of weird because even because the Spaniards obviously came over into Mexico and pretty much raped all the fucking indigenous Indians of, of, you know, all the, you know, taught us religion. Spaniards taught us religion. That's how some Mexicans are fair skinned, like myself. I'm not that dark because like, we have some Spanish blood in us. That was cool that we said that, but it's such a mix. You know, my friend from Sepultura, Andreas Kisser, is half German. You know what I mean? Oh, wow. I didn't know that. Part, part German. Yeah, he's part German. So in Mexico as well, 
some of us are mixed with Spanish. You know what I mean? Spaniards. And so, and that's where I came from. Because Casares or Casares is actually Spanish last name. Your pseudonym in the band was Asesino, Assassin. Yep. Yep. And you did a project, or maybe you still do it, and I'm not aware of it, called Asesino. Did you see that as kind of like an extension of Brujeria or a continuation of it? Well, Asesino, the project Asesino was just an extension or just, yeah, definitely an extension of Brujeria, but it's also its own thing because it just got into the character of who he was. Who was the assassin? And the reason why I came up with the name Asesino because it rhymes with my name. Do you know Asesino? But the project became its own thing, right? Because it didn't sing about what Brujeria sang about. It sang about what, what the assassin does and how he, how he kills people, describes how he gets, technically describes how he gets rid of a body. Um, uh, it talks about, you know, how he goes and searches for his subject and he, he also uh, investigates who that person is knows their schedule and knows when to kill. Right. So it's basically about that, but on the record, it starts off like that where it describes his character and what he does in detail. But then later on, um, he gets caught by the, he gets caught for, you know, obviously for he's responsible for a thousand hundreds of murders. Right. So he finally gets caught and he gets put in prison and he gets put on the electric chair. That's the first album. It's called Tales of Death, Corridos de Muerte. Right? Corridos means like songs, song tales, like song stories, tales, you know what I mean? And so it's called Tales of Death. So it just tells you all the different types of killing he's done. You know, and there's also the nickname of Carnicero, which means the butcher, because he's some Sometimes he butchers them, cuts them up in pieces. Sometimes he buries them. Sometimes he puts them in vats of acid to dissolve the bodies. You know, all different types of stuff, right? It describes all that. But towards the end, like I said, he gets caught and he gets put in prison and he's on the electric chair. And so while he's, while he's on the electric chair, the priest is reading his last rites. But as he's getting strapped in the electric chair, one of the, one of the guards whispers in his ear saying, hey, look, you killed all these people. Why don't you tell us where you hid the rest of the bodies? Because we can't find the rest of the bodies. And we know that you're responsible for a lot more. Asasino decides to answer. And so that's one of the songs on the album, which is Corrido de Asesino, the tale of Asesino. He talks about where he hid the bodies. But as he's being electric electrocuted or before he's electrocuted there's a window in front of him right where the family's victims are sitting there you know wanting to see this motherfucker die because he killed all these people right so but Asasino decides he's like he noticed that he he knows that he has an audience right everybody's listening so he decides to tell them where he hid the bodies and how he killed them and it's brutal, right? Brutal. So the 
the priest that's there to read his last rites sees that this guy is evil and he felt a dark presence from him and he and he's like i got to get rid of this guy quickly so the priest runs over to the lever to, to electrocute him the lever pushes the guard out of the way and says in the name of the father and the son and the holy ghost i fucking summon you to hell and he's like and so he kills him so he kills Asasino on the first record. The priest kills him. So on the second record, it's called Cristo Satanico, Satanico, which means Satanic Christ. Right. I was going to say, is that like Antichrist or what? Okay, Satanic Christ. So it's, a, it's a Satanic Christ. What is a Satanic Christ? I don't know. It's good and evil, right? So that's why the album cover has the Bible that's opened up with an with a upside down cross stabbed in it with blood coming out. Um, when you open up the booklet, has a priest being hung upside down on a cross. Oh, like Simon right? Peter. He he gets crucified upside down because he doesn't want he doesn't feel worthy enough to be crucified in the same way as Christ. So the first record is called Regresando Odio, which means returning with hate. And it talks about uh Asasino coming back from, from hell, coming back from the dead, from hell. And the reason why he comes back from hell is because while he's in hell. He's, he signs a deal with Satan, signs a deal with the devil, right? The devil said, look, I will grant you life back on earth. Uh, but you work for me. You're my assassin. It's like Spawn. Satan said, if you, if, you, if you do these couple of murders for me, you can be free. You can kill whoever the fuck you want. I don't care. Right? You can do whatever you want. You don't work for me anymore. If you do these deals, you just got to do this. I'll grant you life back on earth. So the first song is he's returning and he's coming back with vengeance, right? Asasino comes back to earth, does his job for Satan, does his thing. Then now he's free and he can do whatever he wants. So he's seeking vengeance on, he's seeking vengeance on the priest. But he real, but as he's investigating the, the, the priest, he finds that the priest is like, you know, because these assassins, you know, the professionals, they go and they, they stake out. They watch when he comes, when he goes. They listen to his sermons. They, they you know, they investigate him. Yeah. Well, he finds out that the priest is also living a very lavish lifestyle because he's taking the money from, you know, the people who come into the church. He's getting all their donations. But he's, you know, he's living a lavish lifestyle. But he also finds out and he's a pedophile. He goes, I'm going to torture this priest. I'm not going to kill him my way. I'm going to torture him. So he gets the priest, fucking beats him up, puts him on an upside down cross, and humiliates him. Priest is begging for his lights, life, saying prayers, just saying, don't kill me, blah, blah, blah. And he makes the priest confess to all the shit he's done. Takes him off the cross, puts him in a grave, and buries him alive. Interado vivo. That means buried alive, right? So he's done with that. So Asasino, where he came from, Brujeria, right? He was the assassin for the Brujeria, uh, Brujeria organization, whatever you want to call it. He was the assassin for that organization. He broke free to do his own solo records, right? But when you get, when you get to the second record, Grisa Satanico, in that story, he finds out that he was set up by his boss. His boss set him up to get caught. But he doesn't know 
how the whole organization is going to take that. Because you got to realize there's a lot of people who are part of this organization that you need to get through before you get to the boss, right? So first of all, Asasino came back. And when members of this organization see that he came back, they're like, they're like, oh my God, how did you come back from the dead? What the fuck? Like, holy shit. So they were kind of fearful of Asasino. So Asasino's like, look, I need to get to the boss. I need to fucking, you know, handle this. It's kind of like Scarface, right? It's kind of like Scarface. You have the boss sitting up high up on a, in a fucking gigantic mansion in the back, in a, in a room, mounds of coke. And you had all these guys with guns and stuff like that, protecting the whole property, stuff like that. So here comes, here comes in walking Asasino. And these guys are like, oh, fuck. Do we let him go? Do we not let him go? Do we let him see the boss? Do we not let him see the boss? Hmm. So there's kind of like, there is a little bit of a war that goes on. It's called Batal, uh, Batal Final, like the final battle. That's the last song on the record, the final battle. So Asesino happens to make his way through, gets to see the boss. And so the boss is like, what the fuck? You're alive? Oh, good. You're alive. You can work for me. I need you to do this. I need you to do that. He's like, I'm not here to work for you. I'm here to take your job, take the whole organization. And so before the boss could grab a gun, Asasino pulls out his machete and cuts his head off. So you had all these guys outside that were protecting the property, you know, his guards or whatever. They're all kind of listening to see what's going on, right? Asasino opens the door, comes out. Big double door room, big room, stairs, all these fucking guards. All, like We're talking like, you know, over 100 guys with guns and AK-47s and semi-automatic assault rifles. All these stuff out there standing, seeing what's going to go on. Do we need to kill the assassin? What's going to happen? These guys didn't know what to do. Asasino opens the door, walks through. You hear, everybody's got their guns cocked at him. He holds up the head of his boss, holds him up. Holds it up. And then the next scene you see is everybody with the assault rifles, their guns, AK-47s, machetes, whatever. They're all holding it up. They're all holding up their guns like, yeah, like they were happy that they that I took out the boss. And so now Asasino is in charge of this organization, but doesn't really want that type of organization. He's not about the drugs. He's not about that. So he totally is not even, not really even into that, but he knows that if he needs those people that they're there for him. So he takes over, he takes over in a different way, not necessarily, like I said, not the drug way, but he takes over in a different way. Now the third record's coming and I can tell you a little bit about it. The third record is called the Mekonomicon at, at uh, La Segunda Avenida, which means, Mekonomicon means the book of the well, Necronomicon means the book of the dead, right? Well, in this situation, it's the Mekonomicon, which is the book of jizz of loads. Meko means come. Right? <laughs> That's not what I thought you were about to say. <laughs> and it says the second coming, which is a play on words, second coming of Jesus Christ, or the second time you should load. Asasino finds out that the priest didn't die, he got out of the shallow graves. A little hole, a little hole goes through the ground, and it's a little you see a little sunlight coming through the ground, and it's 
it's Jesus from above who gets them out. So you got the hand of God that let him out. So now the priest has Jesus behind him, right? The power of Jesus, the power of God behind him. Then you have Asasino who has all these guys and he has an army and he has Satan behind him. So now he has, now it's the war between good and evil. It's kind of like Freddy versus Jason. They're like, they're both bad. (laughs) (laughs) Or uh, they're about to do what? King Kong versus Godzilla, right? There you go. Heel versus heel on that one. But on the new record, it's also going to go to the prequel, how he became this assassin. And this is partially a true story because when I was a kid, my dad was also a cattle farmer, right? He grew vegetables and for us and sold vegetables, but he also was a cattle farmer and uh, he uh, slaughtered a, a steer every year for us to eat. That's how the assassin learned how to skin people or chop people up. You know what I mean? How he became the nickname of the butcher, Carnicero. You ever watch the movie The Nun? That's yeah. what we call The Nun. It's a little bit of The Nun in there, all that satanic evil shit. And along the way, there's, there's a lot of little sex, sexual escapades okay. that happen. Um, it sounds like a know, Robert Austin. Rodriguez movie. That's what I mean. There like you he go. would be the Perfect. man. Yeah. Yes, exactly. From Dust Till Dawn, Boom. those type of things. Um, machete. Um, Spy Kids. I don't think I, I don't, I didn't watch. Did he direct that? Yeah. Okay. Hey, man, he's going to make money somewhere. I was going to say, that's how he funds all the cool movies. Is doing <laughs> yeah, the- exactly. Is Roy Mayorga a part of this? Didn't he do some sort of like production for it before? He actually did the title track Cristo Satanico, which is like just all orchestral, cool movie, movie type stuff. And we use that for the intro of the live shows. But it's also, you know, towards the end of the record as well. It's just, it's just all instrumental. He's also done live sound for us as well. He's a really good live sound man. I don't think people know that about him, but he's really good at doing live sound. You know, there's a, speaking of trilogies, there's essentially a trilogy of Brujeria albums that you're a part of. Where would you I, place Raza Odiata in that that trilogy of, of LPs? I think it's definitely the best record. It's the record that really crossed over to a lot of people. You know, it was coming off the heels of the manufacturer, you know. So me and Raymond were in this writing mode that we were just like, uh, everything that we wrote just sounded amazing. It was more much more evil than... You know, the the black metal bands that were kind of singing like mythological, satanic black metal, you know. It, this was more evil because it was just more, it hit you. How do I say it? It was more relatable. You could actually envision what you guys were talking about happening versus the other stuff was almost like, like you said, like mythological, like casting spells. So our stuff was kind of like, you know, it was definitely real death metal. I mean, real metal, the thing about death. You know what I mean? Like real death, not like exaggerated death. Like, you know, Cannibal Corpse, it's like, you know, some of the stuff they sing about, maybe it happened, I doubt it. Where ours is kind of like shit that happened in Mexico. You can even put it this way. Cannibal Corpse records are an illustration and your album cover is a real photograph. There you go. Kept it straightforward, simple, catchy as fuck, cool guitar tones, great drum tones, great concepts. Um, and it just, uh, it went over really well. And I think that's the, that was like, that's Mike, that's like my D manufacturer of Brujeria, Brazilia. Those two records were definitely groundbreaking in their own way. 
you know, and that was really cool because Brujeria really, you know, hit home to a lot of Mexicanos, Latinos, everywhere, anywhere, anywhere where you speak, spoke Spanish, you knew of the band. And a lot of those Brujeria fans don't even know it was in Fear Factory. They don't even know Fear Factory. And I think that was one of my favorite things because I could go to Brazil or Argentina or wherever and play in Brujeria and they just worship Brujeria. They don't even know anything about Fear Factory. Muchas gracias a la leyenda, Asesino, a.k.a. Dino Cazares, for taking us through the tunnels of Raza Odiada. Look out for that Asesino album, but coming so much sooner than you think, the new Fear Factory record, so make sure to follow at Fear Factory on Instagram to be amongst the first to know about all the news with that. Also, FearFactoryMerch.com has a whole grip of sick drops, including a Soul of a New Machine long sleeve I just acquired, so last... Make sure to tell a friend how much you enjoyed the show and join me every Wednesday for an all-new episode. My name is Ryan Rainbow. This is Meet Meep. And yes, that's the best I could come up with. Bye! So you ask me, do I know Pancho Villa? Yeah, we had lunch one time.